Well, Augustine of Hippo, who would become known as St. Augustine or St. Augustine, depending on your pronunciation, he was born in 354 AD in the African town of Thagaste, which is now modern-day Algeria. His father was an unbeliever until converting just before his death, but um, Augustine's mother was a believer, a very devout and faithful Christian who witnessed to her son and taught him from the scriptures and prayed for him and his conversion. But it seemed, even though she was witnessing to him unceasingly, that this had no effect on the young man. Uh, Nothing anyone said to him made any real lasting impact on his life. He even heard the preaching of the famous preacher Ambrose, but it had no effect on him whatsoever. Um, When he was 16 years old, he moved out of the house and moved to a big city where he became uh, completely enslaved to lust. He moved in with uh, a lady that became his concubine or his mistress that he didn't marry, lived with her for many years. Um, He got into all types of sexual sin, selfishness, stealing, uninhibited hedonism, and became even entangled in cults and false teachings. By any human standards, this young man was lost. He went on for over a decade like this, getting more and more entrenched in his sexual sin, in his partying lifestyles and the drunken orgies that he was part of um, with these false teachings and cults. All the while, his mother was faithfully praying for him, and he was beyond salvation. And then it happened. Late August 386 AD, this would make him 32 years old, Augustine was talking with a friend about the holiness of a monk that they knew, an Egyptian man. And while he was talking about it, he became deeply convicted about his own unholiness and his own lifestyle and didn't really know what to do about that. But he found himself alone in a park thinking about these things. And we know what happened next from his autobiographical work, The Confessions. Maybe you've heard of The Confessions of um, St. Augustine. So he writes this, and he's writing it to God. So he, call, he speaks to God in, in the, as a second person. He says, there was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my chest to take refuge in this garden where no one would interrupt that fierce struggle. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me to sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me to life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will, O God. I tore my hair. I hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears. In my misery, I kept crying, how long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? Suddenly, I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, the refrain, tole lege, tole lege, which is Latin for take up and read, take up and read. 
At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these. I could not remember ever hearing them before. I hurried back to the place where my friend was sitting and seized a Bible and opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Romans 13, 13, let us walk not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I had no need to read more. For an instant, as I became to the end of the sentence, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. So after years and years of sin and rebellion, getting entangled and entrenched in this, all it took was reading one short passage from the Bible to break through all of that, even though he had heard this countless times from other people, when he read it for himself, he got saved. And the rest is history. He became one of the most, if not the most, influential Christian theologian of all time. And what was the seed of Augustine's salvation? Now, maybe you have a loved one that you feel is beyond salvation. They're so entrenched in their sin and their lifestyle and their addictions. Maybe they're in a cult. Maybe they're uh, led astray by false teachings. And you think, what could ever break through? This is exactly what Peter talks about in our text this morning. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, you, you know if you've been coming here uh, the past several weeks, we've been going through this verse by verse. Peter is writing this letter to Christians scattered abroad by their persecution that they're in, and he's reminding them to keep their eyes on, on the distant future of their salvation, knowing that this is not a sign of God's judgment that they're suffering, but rather that this is a time of testing of their faith that's drawing them closer to God and that they need to keep their hope on Christ and their coming salvation. We saw that he spoke about the, the security of our salvation in Christ, the, the privilege of it, the cost of it, the worth of it. He even supplied a, one of the proofs of salvation, one of the assurances that you can have that you're saved is love of other Christians. We looked at that and the brotherly love that comes from being in Christ. Now he's going to launch into a tribute to God's word. And we're going to look at this over the, the next couple of weeks. It goes all the way into chapter 2, where Peter talks about the, the word of God is revealed in Scripture is the mechanism that God uses, the tool that God uses to get us to the point where we can be saved so that we can have this future salvation and that even if you're in persecution and you're spread all over the world and you're going through these trials, you need to keep your minds on heaven and your salvation. Well, how do I get saved if I'm not? How do I help other people get saved if they're not? This is what Peter's going to be dealing with now. And, you know, the, the answer is the word of God. But Peter says it very, very well. So let's just read about the seed of salvation starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass 
and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So this morning we're going to look just really at verse 23, and we're going to see five characteristics of the Bible, the Word of God, so that you will effectively employ it in working out your salvation. And we're only going to get to the first three uh, this morning, and then in the following verses we're going to see the next two next week, Lord willing. So five characteristics of the Bible so that you can uh, employ that in working out your salvation. Divine power, divine source of the Word of God, the divine action of the Word of God, and then next week we'll look at the divine eternality and proclamation. So let's look at the divine power of the Word of God. Let's see how powerful the Bible is and what God has revealed for the purpose of salvation. In verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. So Peter here is addressing believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. Remember, he's talking to believers that have been scattered abroad because of their faith, because of the persecution. And he says here, you have been born again since this has happened to you. And we know from John chapter 3 that that phrase being born again refers to being saved, to becoming a Christian, a disciple of Christ, um, to have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, being brought from the dead, from the spiritual dead, into spiritual life and being granted eternal life. These are all synonyms that the Bible uses for being saved, which is kind of what we say in our vernacular. Uh, Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again. And Peter understands that and uses that same terminology here to be speaking about a person that's been saved, been brought back from spiritual dead, as it were. So, how were they born again, according to Peter? Not through anything that they did or that humans did to them or for them, but, verse 23, through the living and abiding Word of God. It's not being baptized as a baby that gets you saved. It's not by keeping certain rules and, and laws that gets you saved. There's something about the Word of God that is involved in your salvation, and this is what he's going to teach us about. So have you ever wanted to share the gospel to somebody, but you, you feel that it's just not going to work? This person's just not going to listen. Maybe they're a devout Muslim, and you think, this is just silly. I'm trying to teach a Muslim about becoming a born-again Christian. It's just not going to work, right? Or maybe they're a raging hedonist, and they just they love their, their lifestyle, their sexual promiscuity, the drug culture, or whatever it is. Maybe they're just a content agnostic, just an intellectual has come to a point where they've decided, I've, I've weighed the evidence and I've decided there is a God, but you just can't know him and you certainly don't need to worship a, a man named Jesus. And you kind of think that your gospel pitch to them, your gospel presentation feels like an infomercial, you know, one of those like, no, really, if you sign on now, you're going to get this great thing, but wait, there's more, you know, you get the Holy Spirit and it just sounds so trite and so... So silly, like it's, not, it's just not going to work with these people. That's exactly how Augustine's mother must have felt, seeing her son in this debauched lifestyle for year after year after year. You feel like you're chipping away at a, the Berlin Wall using nothing but a plastic spoon. <laughs> well, you need something else. 
you need to realize the power that comes in using the word of God in your gospel presentation. Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and nominal Christians and Satanists get saved all the time. Such were some of you. But how is this possible? Verse 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The verse tells us that God's word is the seed of salvation. Being born again is a fruit of something and the way it gets planted is through the word of God. No soul, you could say it this way, no soul gets saved without the word of God. You don't have to be literate to be saved. You don't have to read it for yourself. But you do need the information that's contained in the Word of God to be saved. Whether you hear it in a sermon, or in a, a book that you read, or in a testimony that someone gave, or that you read it yourself in Scripture, or somebody just explained the gospel to you, the information that leads you from being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light is information that is contained in the word of God. It comes from the word of God. You must have that. You cannot be saved without that information. Now, can the Bible really have an effect on saving souls, just reading those words? Can, how does it have that kind of power? You can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'll just go back into Paul's epistles, a couple of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, I don't know if you remember, those of you who were here in the church when I was candidating to be the pastor, I came and after I preached or whatever, one, I think it was one evening service or Wednesday or something, we had, a, we had a Q&A session with the congregation. And somebody in the congregation asked me, so if you come, um, what will you do in order to help grow the church? And I said, Puppets. You remember that? I don't know if you remember that or not, but I, I said puppets. I, I think that people love puppets, and if you have a wonderful puppet show, word will get around and people come and look at the puppets, and then they'll get saved, and then the church will grow. And it was, it was like crickets. <laughs> like, have we got the right guy here? And then I said, no, I'm just kidding. Don't worry, I'm just joking. And there was this like sigh of like, oh, okay. He's just joking. And then... And then this is what I told you. I said, I, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to just preach the word. And it, the word is what has power to grow the church. As people get saved and people mature, then they share the gospel with other people. And then those people get saved and then they mature. And then they do that. And it all comes through the word of God. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 13, this is where I get my marching orders from as a pastor, as a, as a preacher. Paul told the young preacher Timothy that this is what I want you to do. 1 Timothy 4, 13. Until I come, devote yourself, yourself what? To the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, that's preaching, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, the doctrine, and persist in this. Why? For by so doing, 
you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the manifesto of the preacher. His job is to read the word publicly, to explain the word publicly, to exhort. That's preaching. That's the difference between a lesson where you just get taught what it means, what it says, like a history lecture, to the exhortation is, now you need to do something about it. Now, please, I want you to obey this. I want this to change your life. That's, that's the preaching part. He needs to immerse himself in these things. Never stop studying. Never stop growing. Never stop learning the word. Why? Because that's how you get saved. And that's how your hearers get saved. You can go back to 1 Peter. You know, there are hundreds of books out there on church growth and how to expand one's ministry. 40 days of this program or alpha that or, you know, run this program twice a year and make bold goals about baptism and all sorts of things. Build a new building, have a good child care, have comfortable pews and good coffee and make sure there's enough parking and all of those things. And none of that's necessarily wrong. It's just that's not what works. I mean, you could fill up a church, but fill it up with who? People that know the Lord Jesus Christ and are growing and maturing? Not on your life. People get saved when they hear the word of God. And when they believe it. And when the Spirit uses it to change them. James chapter 1 verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. You want to know how to break through to that person that you think is never ever going to believe in Jesus? The word of God is able to save their soul. Not you, not your sales pitch. The word of God. Romans 1.16. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ contained in the Bible. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not the technique, not the preacher, not the programs, not the childcare, not the parking, not the cappuccinos. The Word of God. I remember uh, when we were in South Africa, we had moved there and after a few years, um, the Baptist Union, we were a Baptist church, the Baptist Union of South Africa sent a representative, made an appointment with me, came sat in my office and said, we have noticed that there is a decline in Baptist churches in South Africa. There's a, a book that comes out every two years that has a record of all the baptisms and membership and all that kind of thing of all the Baptist churches in South Africa. And there's a decline throughout the whole country. But your church is the fastest growing church in the whole country. And you have added more members and done more baptisms than any other church. And so we want you to tell us, what are you doing? So we can teacher to the other churches. So here's this guy, you know, in his suit, let's call him David Wallace, asking, there's this growth going on here, and we're at a point in our lives where we just need some help. What are you guys doing? And I'm there thinking, well, let's think of all the great things that we're doing. No, I just sat there. I was like, I don't know what to tell you. I just preach the Bible. I preach a 45-minute sermon Sunday morning in the New Testament, Sunday evening in the Old Testament. We teach Bible classes. 
We have Bible in our Sunday school for our kids. We have Bible within the youth group. We don't have programs. He was like, well, what are your like evangelistic programs that you run? I said, well, when I preach the word and people mature, they fall in love with Jesus and they tell people that they know about Jesus and then they invite those people to church and they hear the word. And I'm like, dude, I got nothing for you. I just do, I just, I just do what I, I saw done by my pastors. They just preached. That's how I got saved. I just got invited to a little Bible study on campus and the guy was preaching through Ephesians verse by verse and I got saved. So that's what I do. And he was very disappointed. He was like, there's no way he could possibly go back to the Baptist Union and say, we need to teach all of our churches to just preach long expository sermons twice on Sunday and see what happens. Charles Spurgeon said, I know not whether you see that lion. He's imagining something. The lion, it's very distinctly before my eyes. A number of persons advance to attack him while a host of us would defend the grand old monarch with our strength. Many suggestions are made and much advice is offered. This weapon is recommended and the other. Pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Why? They are gone. No sooner goes forth in his strength than his assailants flee. The way to meet infidelity is to spread the Bible. The answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible. I love that quote. You don't have to defend a lion. You just have to open the cage. The lion takes care of himself. We don't have to try to defend the Bible to people because you're thinking, well, if I share the Bible with this atheist friend of mine, he's going to say, I just don't believe the Bible. I'm telling you, I, I, can, I can tell you from experience that when people say they don't believe the Bible, you ought to just ignore that and read the Bible anyway. Because people can have an intellectual objection to Scripture, but there's something about the Word of God that is powerful. And when they hear it, it just starts working. And they say, well, I don't believe it. Okay, but can I read it to you anyway? Let's see what happens. When you evangelize, you need to remember your job is just to let the lion out of its cage. So I would recommend that you, you evangelize with a Bible. Have a little pocket New Testament or something. And, or memorize the Romans Road. If you don't have the Bible, you can just Google Romans Road. It gives you a bunch of verses in order in, just in the book of Romans. And so you can, you can share the gospel with, just with those. We've had a class yet at, at our church where we've taught people those verses. You can just Google it. But have a Bible, and, and I, when I was first saved, I had a little, now you can do it on your phone, of course, but I had a, like a little pocket New Testament, and I wrote verses with a gospel presentation, because I didn't, I didn't have them memorized, and so when I would evangelize, I'd open up my little pocket New Testament, and I'd just go from one verse, and then in, when I got to that page, I'd have them read the verse, and they would be in the margin, I'd wrote what the next verse is, and I'd flip to that one, and have them read that verse, and you can see it working as people, I would make them read it, and you can see it working. One of my good friends, when we, when we first met, we were working together in a bookstore. I worked in a bookstore in South Africa when I was in college, and there was this friend of mine. Um, well, we, we kind of met there. We were working together, and he was, I was a brand-new believer. I didn't know much or how to evangelize, and he was, um, he was extremely intelligent. And so I was trying to lead him to Christ, but he had these 
philosophical arguments that I didn't know the answer to. And you would, you would, we, we had both studied some philosophy, and so we would, I kept trying to like wrestle with him using the philosophical arguments and trying to bring Bible, and nothing was working. So one day I said to him, our, our church was preaching through Ecclesiastes in the evening, and I was just struck by how philosophical it was. And I said, I tell you what, I will read whatever you tell me to read, and you read the book of Ecclesiastes. And he said, deal. So I can't even remember what he gave me to read. I didn't read it. But um, I was busy, okay? Um, but he went home and read the whole book of Ecclesiastes by the time we met for the next shift. And so he came in, and I was like, hey, I haven't, I haven't read what you've read yet. He was like, I read the book of Ecclesiastes. I said, well, I haven't read what you've read yet. And he said, what time is church? Because I told him my pastor's preaching through Ecclesiastes. And he read it, and he just wanted to understand it. And there was something in the reading of that book that just gripped him. And he came, and after a few weeks, I, he didn't miss a service. He went to all the Bible studies. After a few weeks, he was saved. And he's been walking with the Lord ever since, so we still keep in contact. And it was, it was nothing that I did. I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't engage with him at that level. And so I just let the lion out the cage. So that's the divine power. Don't just tell them what you know from the Bible. Give them the actual verses in the Bible. It's the difference between saying that there's a lion in a cage and swinging the door open and showing them the lion. Secondly, let's look at the divine source of the Word of God. The Word of God has divine power. It also has a divine source. Verse 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So there's two types of seed. There's the perishable seed he's talking about and the imperishable seed. Now, what I did is I, did a, I have software on my computer that really helps with this, Logos it's called Logos Software, and I, I typed in these two terms um, and saw where they occur in Scripture together, perishable and imperishable, and something really interesting popped up. It, these two words occur together in the same verse or within a verse of each other six times, only six times this pairing occurs, and every time it refers to the difference between earthly and heavenly. So even though the word perishable can refer to fruit or whatever, whenever perishable and imperishable are used together in the Bible, all six times, it means earthly or heavenly as the source of something. So for example, it occurs in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Paul says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, speaking of a physical reward that they would you know, expire. But we, an imperishable, speaking of an eternal reward. So they do it for an earthly reward, we do it for a heavenly reward. They do it for a temporary reward, we do it for an uh, eternal reward. So in a discussion of how we get what happens with our bodies when we die, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. So again, he says the difference between your body now and your body in heaven is that the one is temporary and earthly and perishes, and the one in heaven lasts forever and it's immortal. So my point simply here is that 
when Peter uses this pairing here, and he talks about the word of God, look what he's saying about its source. He's saying the source is not an earthly source. It's a heavenly source. That's how these words are used. This is why that's important. Because when you talk to somebody about the word of God, and they don't believe the word of God, the most common thing that you're going to hear them say is, the reason I don't believe in the Bible is because it was written by men. And men make mistakes. That's the, I'm telling you, that's what's going to happen. If you tell people what the Bible says, they're going to say, oh, well, the Bible. The Bible is written by men, and men make mistakes. They contradict each other. They've got agendas. It's corrupted because humans have produced it. But what Peter's saying is, it is not from an earthly seed. It is not from an earthly source. It is from a heavenly source. That is an incredibly important thing for you to understand about the Word of God. That's why it has such power. That's why it works like that when you read a verse. You don't even have to defend it. The verse just impacts the person. There's something happening there that you don't see when you read philosophy. You don't see when you read psychology. You don't see when you read the Quran. Listen, I've read the Quran. It's weird. You read the Bible, and it's powerful. And we might not understand that, except that he's saying it's because of its source. It has a power, it works in you, and the reason it works in you is it was not made by a man. It comes from God. You can look over, just go to 2 Peter, just flip the, uh, to the next book there, 2 Peter chapter 1. I mean, what's so amazing is that there's this, this unity of theme throughout the whole Bible. It's written, it's a book, it's the only book like this that's written over thousands of years by dozens of different authors that were not all trained in the same way. There's shepherds and there's kings and there's everything in between. There's fishermen and there's doctors. And yet all of these people who were not working in a committee, that had no one overseeing them, that had all different backgrounds and language abilities and training and experiences over thousands of years, these dozens of people all write about something and they never contradict each other. And there's like a whole little cottage industry out of there, people trying to point out the contradictions in scripture. And you can just go and buy a book from any bookstore where it's salt about hard sayings in the Bible and it just shows you how there's no contradictions, there's harmonization. It's like, it's not like it's the first time anyone's ever heard that argument, how many times did the cock crow? Just go read about it, it tells you how it works. And this amazing unity in, of theme and thought and doctrine from all these people, how's that even possible? If you try to write a book by committee, 12 of us decide to write a novel. You write one chapter, I write one chapter, we'll do it several years apart. And we'll throw in our committee some people from different cultures and different languages and different education groups and, and we'll just see how that pans out. It'll be a mess. But 2 Peter 1.20 tells us this. Knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. The Holy Spirit is overseeing this whole committee. The, the Holy Spirit is the 
the one who's producing the material. Yes, he's using these different people in their different ways, and sometimes it's direct revelation, sometimes it's audible revelation, sometimes, you know, once God actually wrote on the stone tablets. Um, there's all these different ways that the communication comes, but in the end, it's all under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Man didn't create the Bible any more than the newscaster creates the news. People just reported, wrote down what was given to them by God. That's why 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by what? By God. And all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. The Puritan said the Scripture is the chariot in which the Spirit of God rides. The Scripture is the chariot in which the Spirit of God rides. People say, does God still speak today? Yeah, he's speaking to you right now. Look down and read what he's saying to you. The word of God is God speaking. Go back to First Peter. So that's the divine power and the divine source. And I often say to this when people say, well... You know, we can't ever really know God and we can't, we can't know if this is his or not. It's, I take a lot of comfort in thinking about it this way. And I'll sometimes ask a person this. Do you think, so if there were a God, let's just say for argument's sake, there, there was a God who was all-powerful and almighty and all the things that the Bible says about this God. If there were such a God, and if he wanted to communicate with his creation. Could he do that? If there were a God who was all-powerful and he wanted to communicate to his creation in a way that was clear so that they knew who he was, so that they knew his will, so that they knew what he expected of them, if there were a God and that's what he wanted, could he do that? And obviously, we're going for the sake of argument, there is this God obviously being all-powerful and all-wise, he could. So if there's a God and he wants to communicate clearly what his will is and who he is, and we, we recognize that he can do that, then why is it so surprising to us that when we find a book that's been written over thousands of years by dozens of people from all walks of life that has no contradictions, that makes a claim that it is the word of God that he gave to us so that he can communicate with us, why is it surprising to us that such a book exists? And if we reject it, what else have we got? So you really have to go all the way back to saying, yeah, there can't be a God. Or there is a God, but he's not real good at communication. I mean, you're left with that. I like how Steve Lawson says it. God doesn't have a speech impediment. You know, if he wants to communicate clearly, he could do it. And so the only thing that it boils down to is, do you believe that he did? Do you believe that he's there, that he wants this, and that he did? So that's the divine source. Let's look at the divine action, finally, for today. 
Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, like earthly source, but of imperishable, a heavenly source from God, through the living and abiding word of God. So I want to focus on that phrase like living and abiding. The word of God doesn't have a once-off effort. Uh, sorry, effect. The word of God doesn't have a once-off effect in your soul and then becomes dormant. The word of God has this ongoing effect. It's living and abiding. So it's, it's abiding means dwelling with you and living, obviously, it, 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 it's not non-living. There's something happening there. You know, if you read a newspaper, as soon as you've read the newspaper, it is now redundant. It's, it has an expiry date. It doesn't help that you get the newspaper from 1984. You know, ooh, the Apple Mac. It's coming out with a new Apple Mac. Yeah, the first one. That's no longer relevant, right? You now just use that newspaper to, to line your birdcage. The Bible's different. This was written thousands of years ago, but you read it, and it's still as relevant today as it was then. I would argue it becomes more relevant because Peter, remember, told us that the people who wrote the stuff down, they didn't even understand it like we do. They were searching to inquire what they were writing about because now that the things have happened that they said, we can actually understand it better than they did. So this is, this is a document that is living and active and sharper than two-edged any two -edged sword, right? You know that verse, Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's, he's using hyperbole here. He's just saying this is how precise and effective this word of God is. You know, I'm always amazed by medical technology and just how it keeps getting better and better and more and more capable. But no matter what they do with them, their microscopes and their scalpels and their laser and their robots and everything that they're now using and all of the chemistry involved, they can never ever look into your brain. Even there's cells in your brain so small you can't even see them, but these surgeons can go in there and they cannot tell your motives. You can never see someone's intention, their desires, their spiritual state. But the Word of God can. It is sharper than any scalpel. It can get right in there. And when you're reading the Bible, that's what you feel, that scalpel to the heart of conviction you don't get that from reading other things, uh, other material. You read the Bible and you're like, how does it know that about me? Because it's living and active. The Holy Spirit produced it. God breathed this out. So verse 23 tells us, not of perishable but imperishable, through the living and abiding. So abiding word of God. The abiding here means to live with you. It follows you around. It's kind of like, you know, as you're going through this life, as you've got this body God that's just shadowing you wherever you go, 
that's what the word of God is like. It's, it's with you. The Holy Spirit uses whatever you've put in your mind, all of your reading, all of the snippets of scripture you've heard and snippets of truth and sermons that you've sat under, it's all in there and the Holy Spirit uses it. That's why I tell people one of the best reasons for you just to keep reading your Bible year after year after year is because you're giving ammo to your bodyguard. You're, you're, you're giving tools to the Holy Spirit to use because you can't, None of this happens without the word of God. So you've got to put the word of God in there. Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do you stop sinning? You store up his word in your heart. Know it. Study it. Understand it. Memorize it. It's in there. He goes on to say, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. This is a person that loves the word of God, who meditates on it, who reads it, who fixes his eyes on it, that treasures it more than all riches. It's like your, your body, you, you could lie perfectly still, but there's still movement going on inside. Have you ever seen somebody that they're lying dead, dead still and, and you get there and then their stomach rumbles? You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> My kid's just sleeping. Um, that's what the Bible's like in you. It's in you and it, it's, not, it's always moving inside you, even when you're still. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, he says, as a man would carry an antidote with him when he comes near an infected place, so a godly man carries the word in his heart as a spiritual antidote to preserve him from the infection of sin. But alas, how can they who are seldom conversant with the scriptures say that they love them? Their eyes begin to be sore when they look at a Bible. The two testaments are hung up like rusty armor, which is seldom or never used. They would rather... Look at a pair of cards than a Bible. For us, we could put in Netflix. Would you rather watch TV than look at your Bible? Would you rather hear from the Discovery Channel than discover truths about God? Would you rather hear the day's news than the good news? Even devotional and Christian books can become a distraction to us. They're like the drinks that are designed to be eaten with your meal and not replace them. It's fine for you to read Christian books. We sell Christian books in our bookstore. I love reading Christian books. I love reading biographies, devotional books, all those things. You know we are a reading church. But never let that supplant your reading of Scripture. Everything we read is the milkshake on the side. This is the meat. Or tofu, whatever it is that you're into. Anyway, I want this to become our attitude. If we don't know the word of the God, the word of God or the God of the word, we need to. We need to know him. Don't wait another day. Don't say like Augustine said, tomorrow and tomorrow. Today, take up and read. This very day, if you don't know where to start, pick a gospel, the gospel of John. Read the gospel of John. 
read the proverb of whatever the date is of the month. There's 31 days, there's 31 chapters, figure it out. Just get in there and start reading. This word has divine power, able to cause souls to be born again. It has divine source. It's a heavenly source, not an earthly source. And it has divine action. It is always living and abiding in you and with you. But that's not all. Because the two other characteristics come back next week, and I'll give them to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this reminder of your power in our lives through your word. It is you who breathed out the word. It is you who brought it to our attention. It is you who put it in our language, enabled it to be published and distributed, that we have easy access to it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to not take that for granted, but that we would read your word, that it would abide in us, and that we would grow to be more and more like our Savior who lived and died for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.